Hi everyone. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, hopefully a few of you can tune in. I'm going to have a conversation with uh, my very good friend, Burst, uh, Dr. Burst. Um, basically, we're going to have a, a chat. Um, we're working on a couple of big projects at the moment, um, which are, um, we have the TMD exhibition that's happening at the Daos Museum. That's opening on the 1st of April. Uh, down in Lower Hutt in Aotearoa and um, we're also um, working on a book project at the moment and um, this discussion is basically I'm working on like a um, a series of interviews that are going to be in this book project um, and I, I figured that maybe like you guys could enjoy or, or take like a little bit of um, you know um, some of the knowledge that some of my, my uh, crew members are going to share and um, yeah that it might be interesting for you so excuse me this is kind of like the first time that I've, I've hosted one of these myself um, I've been interviewed a bunch of times and I'm just waiting for for Burst to join so um, hopefully he'll he'll get in there in a second and won't keep us waiting so I get to feel all awkward like this um, so yeah anyway yo yo <laughs> here he is oh, thanks for only, only letting me uh, hang for a good two or three minutes <laughs> that was awkward sorry Mm. How's it going? How are you doing? It's going good, bro. It's freezing over here in San Jose right now. We had like a kind of a random like few days of what seemed like kind of spring, mid-spring weather. And uh, today it's it's like, you know, it's like about probably uh, six or seven degrees Celsius. So it's like, ugh, not the one, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been How's... staying inside working on the studio stuff? Working on stuff for our show, man. How about you? How's your work coming along? Uh, yeah, just sorted all most of the dairy kind of products mm -hmm. and still working on the stuff for the show slowly. Oh, cool. But, awesome. Yeah. Sweet. So well, let's, let's get into this. Um, I'll give a little bit of introduction. I don't think like too many people need, you know, an introduction to you, but, um, but in case they don't know. Um, so this is Burst, aka Dr. Bobby Hung who's uh, actually now a doctor. What, what, is, what is actually, you have a PhD in education. So can you talk a little uh, bit about that? Yeah, PhD in philosophy, brackets, education. Um, and basically the kind of focus of it um, centers around bringing something like street art into visual arts education at high school and kind of at tertiary university level. Uh, art education and yeah, for that last year and then that basically marked 14 and a half years of uni study so pretty long journey mm -hmm. you've you've been studying as long as i've known you like um i think you oh, were possibly. doing i think you were doing a diploma in graphic design when we first started yep. hanging out but and possibly. you've been studying studying ever since i mean for the for the you know most part of you know when i started graph in you know, since I left high school, I've been studying, you know, at, within a kind of tertiary environment and mm. literally year after year, it's been study. So pretty happy to be finished with that. Yeah. Yeah. And now injecting, you know, some of this, um, this hard work and this philosophy into the tertiary environment, which is pretty exciting as well. Like thinking back to when you were at high school, I mean, how hungry for this would you have been? Um. I mean, when I was at high school, pro probably not much 
to be honest, because I was still yeah. kind of finding. But you know, as I got into found, the tertiary environment, yeah, yeah. Once I kind of found my roots within graffiti, and then after studying art school and kind of getting exposed to the the art world, mm-hmm. um, after that, then being introduced to the kind of teaching aspect, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of formed this little bit of a kind of pyramid of of kind of areas or fields um, for me to be able to do what I do now, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually just this week um, I came off of a five day, you know, masterclass kind of workshop out at Corbin's, mm-hmm. you know, three of those people that were part of it. I mean, it's all pretty much all adults, mm. uh, but three of those people were all art teachers, you know, and wow. they were, um, get some takeaways around how they could teach kind of graffiti art, you know, back into high school. So that's kind of pretty cool. That's super awesome. So like going back to the start of your journey, so you went to Auckland Grammar, right? Yeah, man. And there were, (laughs) there were quite a a number, number of writers that came out of that school. Yeah. I mean, I would say that um, the main kind of taggers probably at the time um, that I kind of associated with were probably people from HD. It's kind mm-hmm. of like a crew um, at the time. And, and they're still not so much painting now, but they're still kind of active as, as a kind of group of friends. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, HD and, um, you know, I know that there has been also a couple of people painting pieces and things that came from there, but it's not people that I knew, you know, personally at that time. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of guys that came out of that school that are more like my generation and a couple of years older. So there was kind of like a legacy, um, you know, like attributed to that school or connected to that school. So, I mean, I'm trying to think back to the era. Now, you're how many years younger than me? You're like six years younger or eight years younger than me? I'm, I'm 36 this year, but, so 35. Okay, okay, so six six years difference. So um, I kind of, I've talked a bit, you know, with people in the past, like in other interviews I've done about what the Auckland landscape looked like as far as graffiti went, um, sort of, and I, I kind of come out of that kind of like early 90s kind of period. Um, I guess your beginning stand is sort of theoretically in the kind of like mid to late 90s, more like late 90s. And to me, that's a, awesome. into the early 2000s then. Maybe your yeah. awareness of graffiti is like a little earlier. But I, I kind of think of you guys like your generation, like the kind of TNC guys and the GBAC guys and stuff who all kind of came out at a similar time. Um, you guys are kind of like that kind of, I guess that 2000 wave on and the kind of era of Disrupt Magazine yep. and there were hip hop summits and there was that that was going on. But also, you know, there was like um, actually like um, tons of graffiti everywhere, right? Absolutely, man. And it was not just, like, when I grew up, it was just straights and tags, you know, like, and very silver, like, simple silver and block letter stuff and everything. But for you guys, it was starting to evolve more into, like, kind of, like, what the scene became. So I just wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about, like, you know, your perceptions of that landscape at that time and what it looked like. I mean, I would say that when I first kind of started off, like, when I was still at high school, um, what I was seeing at that point in time was still kind of just the tagging scene. And that's because that's what I saw on the street. You know, I didn't know to go anywhere else. And so there was definitely already a lot of roll calls. And um, for people that don't know, roll calls are things that, kind of, you know, 
lists of names of all the people, you know, possibly in the car at the time for a house party or something. That's kind of usually how it went. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, I would say it was probably predominantly straight, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of, that I saw the most of. And then eventually after, I would say that the key thing really for me was, um, I had a friend, his name was Bowser, and he basically lived by combat zone. Literally mm. like, like, I don't know, pot, you could pretty much walk out of his like garden and then like dip straight onto the tracks almost. And for um, people that don't know what combat zone is, just explain. I mean, it's basically a track spot um, near Central uh, in basically Mount Eden where people, you know, there was always mad activity of graffiti and just like crazy burners all the time. And so, yeah, kind of once I discovered the train tracks, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, this is like a public, you know, underground kind of gallery or something. You know, what is this? How is there so much graffiti here? How is this? That's the first thing. And then second thing is how is there so much quality here? Mm. You know, like how even... Because at this point, I can still only tag just. And I'm just like, how the hell do people even do this? And, and likely at nighttime, like this is mm. insane. And then I guess that paired with um, the internet, you know, because kind of in the early 2000s, this is still quite a new thing, this idea of an internet, you know, the internet and mm. kind of exposure to what was it, Hip Hop NZ, mm. you know, <laughs> that's that was I, 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 yeah, you know, I really, I really, I really attribute, I really attribute your guys' generation as being like the young guys that were super vocal and active on those hip hop forums. I think like, like I met obviously Hazza, I met probably was the one, the first one that I met because I used to teach the workshops out at Corbin's, like what you're doing now. And he came along as a 15 year old um, and did a workshop, which he, he was very disappointed with, but that me and him will get to that when I do his interview. But, um, and, uh, and then, you know, I met his brother talk, obviously, but Senes was the other one who I remember being very active yep. online and he was quite evolved quite early. Like he had like really good outlines, like before everyone else. And, Oh, you, you cut out a little bit. He already had so much skills like you know he could rock crazy pieces in the black book and everything and i think he was quite an early adopter you know of already knowing what was kind of happening overseas whereas mm. it was kind of fresh to me and i was just seeing what's happening in new zealand mm -hmm. but yeah you know just having that exposure where people started sharing pictures mm. it was just like what's I, I didn't know all this stuff was happening you know for me that mm. was kind of so after i started see, seeing all the pictures posted up in that forum and then mm. eventually I don't know what came first, whether it was hip hop NZ or if it was art crimes, it was one of those mm. two. And then mm -hmm. discovering profit, like, you know, those three things, you know, kind of just, just like, Oh my God, so much shit to fucking look at getting, get inspired by. Mm -hmm. Um, that that kind of took me down the trajectory of painting pieces because mm. that's how GB at least as part of GBAC started because I linked up with people from Hip Hop NZ like hey let's go paint or something maybe maybe that's a good segue to just to kind of explain the origins of GBAC and the fact that it was two different crews yeah so for the people that don't know 
essentially started off as two separate crews, G and AK. Um, and AK was founded by Dest, spelled D-E-S-T, a West Aucklander, and basically through uh, Hip Hop NZ, which is this forum, we basically linked up me, seen as uh, Dest and Admit and a couple of other guys. Um, and then from that, we basically went painting and kind of, it kind of took on a you know life of its own because suddenly there became a different motivation, you know, like rather mm. than just trying to tag and write your name for yourself, it's like this kind of camaraderie, right? You're like, oh, we got to rip this and kind of get out there. And so we started, you know, bombing and, you know, doing throw-ups together and, you know, basically doing crew pieces and stuff like that. Mm. And then eventually, remember how the kind of connection came about, but we ended up linking up with some of the GB guys, which was essentially... Uh, Talk, Hanza, and Hero. Those were the main guys. And GB had already, you know, was already around and had their own kind of crew of people. But uh, I would say those three were the probably three main people that we linked up with. And then we painted our first production um, in Teatitu. And basically from there, you know, we we had put the words AKG. I still remember that moment. Mm. We were got to sign it off now and they talk or something did like a blocky on the wall and it was like AKGB like, oh that sounds a little bit weird like active like <laughs> around the other way like GBAK like GBAC oh that sound you know kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better mm -hmm. um, and yeah basically from there you know we were like let's let's join the crews and like let's you know work together for you know mm. unified and like get up and so I think, yeah, that really joining a crew kind of aspect, um, you know, ignited a, you know, a flame inside all of us, kind of worked mm -hmm. together and achieve, you know, greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. I guess like um, around the time that GBAC kind of came on the scene, another crew that kind of was really running with that ethos of putting the crew first rather than the, the individual names was RB. And I think, you know, like mm -hmm. RB were kind of pretty active and kind of everything that they did was very strategic. Like, you know, they would, they would do a billboard or a street spot that other people wouldn't do. And they would, they would just do the crew like in big silver legible letters. And I sort of see um, you guys as sort of continuing pretty quickly with that kind of ethos, you know, uh, would that, would that be fair and correct? Absolutely. And, you know, for the record, I absolutely want to acknowledge RB, you know, as as being a very important crew, um, at least for the Auckland scene, and mm. a huge for me because I remember seeing, you know, uh, a lot of their huge, you know, RB Chrome blockies, you know, mm. uh, and I think one of the RB guys used to stay down the road from where I was living. Mm -hmm. um, I'd always see their stuff on the main main kind of road, and also mm. always. Um, painting down by the new market kind of train line under Burger King. Mm -hmm. All Derby stuff, you know, running along that line. So, yeah, definitely a huge inspiration and motiv motivation for me to want to mm -hmm. do the things that, you know, we used to be doing. Yeah. What you up, know? Wayne? And, you know, work together, you know. Mm -hmm. I think, like, I think that that's something that made you guys really stand out. Like, there was a, a real cohesion about how you guys work. And, um, I think that kind of really stepped into gear with the big roller stuff that you guys are doing, especially when you started painting them really large and above everybody mm. else. You know what I mean? Like, um, and they were a little more complicated. Like you, you were attempt, you were attempting to, from, from my point of view, uh, paint 
more like elaborate pieces with multiple colors or a roller 10 times the size of anything anyone was doing and up above. And obviously I went with you on a couple of these missions and I also had been out painting with other people and ran into you guys when you guys were out doing those. And, you know, not to take away from the crew or whatever, but it seemed like there was a certain kind of drive and push that you had personally to really make those things happen. Because I do recall running into you guys, you were painting one um, up above, like a, it was a spot in Basque Park. And uh, you guys were painting one. It was the... Um, it was uh, like the great, uh, what, what, what was it? It was Greenbacks and Cron. Cron, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember there was like pretty much the whole of G-Back seemed to be there at the beginning of the night, but kind of by the end, by the end I feel like it might have just yeah. been you or just you and Haz, like the kind of last but, two standing. But possibly. And, and I, I, I do think that, you know, um, it does take everybody in the in the crew to – really pull off something quite spectacular and memorable, you know? Um, but also mm -hmm. I, I would also say that it, to anybody out there that is part of a crew, that it really takes a certain one or two people to be the initiators, you know, the, the people that are mm -hmm. always in and just sometimes somebody needs to kind of take ownership of it. Um, and so for me, I, mm -hmm. I always just felt, you know, to, want to accomplish something i guess um and i knew that in my mind that some of those bigger pieces would be like legacy things you know especially because at that time um mm. a lot of that stuff you know uh, a lot of that stuff was staying up and so mm. for me it was kind of brainer to be doing things on the tracks that were above all of the pieces you know so trying to yeah do things that have yeah um, but more of a kind of, you know, sometimes when you just go paint a piece on the track side, it can get painted out so easily, you know? So that was definitely the motivation to have something that would last longer, especially if you're going to put in all that mm -hmm. effort to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually, um, you know, I know obviously, and I've kind of alluded to how hard these things were, but I wonder if you could kind of explain to people what was involved, because like, um, I don't think people realize that you were literally like standing on the top of an A-frame ladder on the train tracks with sometimes more yeah, than one extendable pole, like. Yeah, I mean, at maximum height, you know, for some of those rollers, it was me on top of an A-frame ladder and often the A-frame ladder is the slightly longer one as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then me on, you know, on the top step. Uh, and then on top of that, it's not just an extension pole, it's the double extension pole. And then obviously there's the kind of extra height of the, the roller itself. Um, and then my arm ended. So I don't know, I, I've never actually measured what the maximum kind of height, you know, the peak of it uh, is. But I know that for sure it is like super dangerous because everywhere that I was, you know, putting the ladder, it's like literally just those rocks, you know, and it's not a stable kind of place to be putting that. So it was a bit of a balancing act and actually quite dangerous, you know, because every time a train would come, you know, you'd mm -hmm. have to like jump off real quickly and like fold the ladder and do all those place like a, <laughs> yeah, but I think quite a dangerous thing to do. And, and maybe I wouldn't be as agile now to do it possibly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases as well, like painting some of those spots, you've got to lug all that stuff around 
and then bring all of the bucket paint, which is, you know, and I know that from memory, the, the biggest one we did was the Mammoth, which was the one uh, by Mission Bay, you know, running along mm -hmm. the horizon. And that one required, like, I think from memory, like 12 of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had I'm the I'm the tide right because we had to go into the water. Um, mm -hmm. And so walking in mud out there. And then the longest, I think... Uh, the size of it, I think it was about a hundred meters or something from memory. I can't quite remember. I know that we used about 120, you know, liters of bucket paint. So, wow. you know, if you imagine like how much of that stuff you carry, carry all the trays and then all the poles and then all the handles and then, and mm -hmm. then the bucket, um, and you're kind of on the main strip of Mission Bay, uh, and mm -hmm. you're dealing with mud and then on the, and, and it took two nights, mm. you know, the 10 or 12 of us and and you have to having to kind of deal with the tide coming back in so i think some of our trays and stuff ended up getting washed away and you know when we were finishing it you know we were already like waist deep in water <laughs> um so no it's, it's definitely like really hard work man like mm -hmm. it, yes I, I take my hats off to people that go do rollers by themselves yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think only like... put in a team I think like I think that that was like a breakthrough moment for GBAC, like for you guys. And um, I was doing the magazine at the time, and we did the issue, which was like the, the crew issue, where we like focused and we had the crew portraits and everything. And you guys uh, supplied a portrait, which was the silhouette of all you guys kind of admiring your hand finished. And it was like, it was definitely like a real moment. You know what I mean? And I, and I think that that's actually around the time that you and I were like first acquainted, like when we first got to know each other, I remember uh, yeah. inviting you in to the gallery one night um, to do yeah. like a, an alphabet, like a tag alphabet for an ill-fated, you know, issue that never came out, but that's a whole nother story. And, uh, and then probably shortly after that in credit to, to uh, bolts, you know, uh, he he's really the one that uh, I think really linked us up like solidly, you know, because um, he, he started inviting me out to come and paint freights more often. And then, you know, you were working security, you know, across the road from the freight spot and you would come yeah. out on your break and we'd, we'd all go and, and rock something, you know? And um, so, yeah, I, I feel like you really made your name during that time, a freight focused writer, you know, somebody that was like, you know, um, you know, pretty much exclusively doing space runners. Do you want to talk a bit about that area? Yeah. yeah, totally, man. I mean, I guess for me, like my my recollect my recollection of my first freight was painting uh, down by Westfield mm -hmm. um, when they were still laying up the kind of space runners by by the transport spot and. We did that one during the day on a Sunday. And I can't mm -hmm. remember if trains were still running back then or not. I can't remember now. I think mm -hmm. they were. But anyway, mm -hmm. we painted and I still remember my second freight that I ever attempted was all the way down south. And I was trying to do a fucking whole freight with super cheap. <laughs> and this freight, just the most ambitious thing ever. And I had this like shitty step ladder. I couldn't even reach the top. And anyway, I copped a fucking case for that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, 
the, the one of the reasons why I targeted, um, you know, kind of painting freights really was mm -hmm. kind of like you mentioned before. Um, I was working at this, this job, which was basically opposite the freight yard. Mm -hmm. and the job was basically super cruisy. I mean, this is like so long ago, you know, like mm -hmm. probably like 15, maybe close to 15 years now. Oh, mm -hmm. no, nah, probably like, um, mm. just, um, but basically we, I worked across the road from the freight yard and, you know, we, we would essentially have three 15 minute or 10 minute breaks, um, mm. but take like half an hour. Um, and then on top of that as well, it basically gave me time to like run down to the freight yard and, and see if there's any freight there. So that when I finished work, I could just call up my mates and be like, yep, sweet, it's all go, you know, like we can, we can go rock it. And at the time as well with that particular spot, like, you know, there was, there wasn't always an abundance of freight. Um, so it was important to kind of get in early and mm. just at that time, you know, often I would finish at like 7 PM. So sometimes it would be verging on dark. So we'd just be able to go in there super early and kind of like get first dibs on the freights. But yeah, no, I was probably working at that spot for like maybe two years, two and a mm -hmm. half years. Mm -hmm. A good little run, I think, um, to just have so be so close to all of, all of that kind of activity and, and be able to paint so quickly and have it mm -hmm. so accessible. And, good. and I mean, I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, at one point, you know, I tried to like push the limits and like, like I said, I had like, I'd take three 30 minute breaks in an eight hour shift. Um, <laughs> I, I would go when I'm at 30 minutes um, for the whole day. Um, mm -hmm. I would go down, paint for half an hour, go back to work, come down, paint for half an hour, go to work. <laughs> <laughs> and when I finished, I'd still go back more. Like, it was just like, the most uncanny thing to be able to do. And I still actually remember at one, even one day, um, you know, I even asked my shift supervisor to come down and take pictures of me so I could pose in front of the crates. You know, like, <laughs> out of control. Like, it, was a, it was a pretty cool situation. I actually remember because you got, and you weren't even painting it, you were taking pictures of some other people there'd been like a robbery like uh nearby and um they were looking for the guy that he'd robbed a, a, a gun store back and uh they came looking for that guy and they happened over you instead and then you end up catching a, a case and then being put on police curfew for you were on a curfew for like about six or seven months from memory and i think during that time oh, right. Yeah, I think during that time you may have painted like um, a whole freight, like a whole Stacey, um, just for super cheap black and chrome, like every single day between finishing your shift and getting home before the curfew. I think you achieved that in a year. Like you could did close to 100 or something in one year, is that right? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that story. I mean, basically, um, on this one ill-fated night, it was so sad because... Um, the story behind it was me and Haz were supposed to go paint, you know, a piece somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we, we got a call from one of our mates, which is from Wellington. 
and he was like, oh, let's go paint some freight. And then, you know, I had to look down at the freight spot and then there wasn't actually any freight except for the freights that we had already painted from, you know, however long ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we were basically end up going over the freights that we had already painted. But I was like, oh, fuck it, all good, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, we ventured into the freight spot and I actually decided not to paint of all nights. Uh, I was just like, yep, sweet, I'll come catch some cool night shots, you know, because I had loaned a camera from uni and, you know, it was this nice DSLR and I was like, great, I can do some, you know, night shots and, you know, whatever, get some real good photos. And then, yeah, as they kind of finished up, basically, um, you know, we kind of left the normal way that we kind of come in and then we see these kind of like dark silhouette kind of figures walking down and we're like, oh, sweet, must be some other riders. Yeah, all good. Um, they're not going to have anything to paint. And then we're like, oh, shit. We like steer a little bit closer. They're probably like 20 meters away from us. Like, oh, shit, they've got a dog. Fuck. And then everybody kind of like just disperses. And then, you know, I don't know where everybody else has gone. But the first thing I do is just kind of like dive into. I don't run anywhere. I just dive into, dive into the bush. And then I'm like reaching into the bag, trying to get the memory card out of the camera. I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And it's like pitch black. I'm not really familiar with this new camera. I'm just like, fuck, just like scrambling. And before I know it, like, it's basically cops with dogs. And then the cops like jumped on top of me. Um, and he's like, get on, you know, get on your, you know, stomach and uh, hands behind your back. And, uh, and then at that mm -hmm. point, I thought that I was like reaching for a gun, you know, because I was like scrambling into a bag. Um, <laughs> and so he was like super hostile you know, real physical and, you know, knee on my, you know, head and all sorts of shit. Um, and it's super chaotic. And then they basically take me back up to the, to the station and, mm. um, you know, they see that I've, it, it's basically a tripod because they think mm -hmm. that was like a fucking shotgun. Uh, so wow. they take me back to the station. They're like, what were you doing? And at that point, I, I'm not sure if um, they knew that there was two other people um, mm -hmm. with me at the time that were doing and uh, yeah, they were like, what were you doing? And I was just like, and this is already like, I don't know, 1am or something, 12.30 uh, at night. And I was like, oh, I was just taking pictures, you know, for uni. It's like a uni project. And then mm -hmm. I like, go through my camera. They're like, oh, so you're, you're, you're tagging, you know, like, because that was a surprise to them. And I was like, mm. no, I don't even know those guys. I was just taking pictures of them. Mm. And then, um, and then straight away they set the dog out to try catch the other other two guys, and then they kind of restrained me. And then I was like, you know, why the hell am I being arrested? You know, I was just taking pictures for my uni project. What's going on? And they're like, we've got a witness that says you broke into a gun shop. And I was like, what the hell? Like, because <laughs> that's not red hot. Like, after you finish robbing a gun store, you're gonna walk across the road and paint a freight with a camera. Like, what? The <laughs> So I'm just like, what the hell's going on? Like maybe they, you know, somebody saw these guys painting a freight and then mm -hmm. they saw me and thought that we were trying to break in or something like that, you know, like that's kind of what I thought in my head at the time. And then they were like, no, we've got a witness. And I was like, what the, you know, what the hell's going on? And then, um, and then they were like, yep, there's a witness. Cause up at the top of the road, there's like a gunshot, which mm -hmm. is probably only, um, I don't know, maybe 200 meters away, you know, mm -hmm. so it's still a relative. 
Uh, but basically somebody had tried to break into the gun shop, you know, reach and steal you know, a, a gun. And um, somebody at the traffic lights, which was in a car, mm-hmm. uh, or that person doing that called the cops. And then um, that person's kind of like split and obviously run through the train tracks, you know, like, or something like that. And then mm-hmm. the police are dog and they've kind of sniffed us out and found us by accident. Um, and then anyway, on that night, basically they, um, they were like, yep, sweet. Like we've got you. And I was like, I, I've got nothing to do with it, but they were like, nope, you match the description. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on that night, you know, I had a checkered shirt on like this, um, mm. cap, you know, I had some facial hair and, you know, dark jeans or whatever. And they were like, yep, you match the exact description. I was like, what the fuck? Oh, and wearing a vest as well. And mm-hmm. apparently that this is what this guy wore. Um, <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> me for, um, I don't know what the charge was. It was either burglary or breaking and entering or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And graffiti. So two things. And then on top of that, that night as well, our mate from Wellington also got busted uh, mm. because the dog catch him and like mauled his arm as well. And um, so he needed to kind of get some medical care. Um, but yeah, basically they, uh, the case basically went on for like, it wasn't six, seven months. It was like over a year. Um, and then you had, and the, they I, held I have him. to say it, you had the most incompetent lawyer, like mad. You remember me coming to court and I was just like side-eyeing your fucking, I was getting so frustrated with your lawyer, man, because I could have done a better job. <laughs> oh, bro, lawyer was useless, bro. He was like a duty lawyer. Um, yeah. yeah, get a duty lawyer. They're fucking useless. You always have to never, get one. Yeah, ne- never get a duty solicitor, ever. Yeah. But basically, they held on to my memory card, which had photos of, you know, of all the pictures that I had taken. And in reality, that was my alibi. Right, mm-hmm. because if if they saw the timestamp on the camera, this was my mm-hmm. evidence. You know, they saw the timestamp on the camera. You know, at say twelve o'clock or twelve thirty mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, if that happened at that moment in time, and there's somebody you know broke into the gun store, you know, just down the road, and that person called up, you know, they would have a you know log of what time she predicts that person would have broken in from what time she would have called, and you know, just. That was basically my evidence. Like, I can't be here and then that person mm-hmm. be there. Mm-hmm. And on the day, they were like, yep. Uh, they gave, just before the case started, they were like, here's your memory card. There's no photos on it. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck. Like, what do you mean there's no photos? They literally held on to my memory card for like a year. And, th- and then now just, you know, five minutes before they say there's no photos on it. And um, you remember... So now- and you remember, I got you to take it to a, a forensics guy to see if he could retrieve the photos. And it wasn't just like, they hadn't just wiped it. It was like maybe even literally a completely new memory card. I don't know, bro, but basically they had fucked me over. And because I now I didn't have any evidence to, like, it was at, I they had just found me on the tracks. Because mm. when I case, went into the courtroom, I just looked like an idiot. I said to the judge, oh, yeah, I was there taking pictures. And then the judge is just like, uh, okay. And I've got no evidence. Um, and then to make things worse, the the witness also turned up to the case. Mm. And he was like 17 years old or something, you know, super young. Mm. Um, 
and the prosecutor, basically the police, were like, said to the witness, can you see that person in the courtroom here today that you mm -hmm. saw that night? And she pointed at me. And I'm like, my heart sunk for it. Like, I couldn't believe that I was being wrongly accused of this crime that, like, I've never seen this trick before, man. Like, I swear to God, like, I've never seen it before. I don't know how she could have even come to terms of saying it was me. Like, it's, it's insane. Crazy. You know, but anyway. I, I, I think there was a point where basically the description had actually identified you as being of a totally different ethnicity. And then she changed her statement to say that you were a distinctly Asian man, which I, <laughs> I don't I, I can tell you right now, that was the most shocking thing I've ever witnessed in my life. I've yeah. never seen she literally pointed at me. Yeah. And was like, it's this guy. And I'm, I'm just standing there. What the <laughs> going on? Like, so that was like a movie unfolding. And but I mean, you know, I mean, during that time, um, you know, that this, you know, I was also on curfew, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that basically meant, you know, I had to be home at like 10 p.m. till 7 a.m. or you know something like that. But you know, that never stopped me still going out there. It just meant I had to pay a little bit earlier. Yeah, and they were checking on you just about every day, didn't they? Uh. I think they checked a couple of times, but mm. it wasn't like super frequent. But, right, you know, right. obviously, if you're not there, then it can just, you know, make it 10 times worse than it needs to be. So I was always there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Man, I mean, honestly, man, I mean, because this, this is all, this kind of coincided with around the time that we ended up putting you in TMD. I think uh, we asked you in TMD, like, kind of towards the end of that year or around mm. that time. And, um, Oh, maybe maybe it was even just prior. Actually, it was it was around that time anyway. I remember you were doing a lot. So I wanted to kind of just talk about TMD a little bit, and just kind of like, you know, what TMD kind of represented to you before you were part of the crew, and kind of um, yeah, just your kind of awareness of of the crew's history and the kind of maybe just your initial interactions with different people in the crew. Yeah, sorry that alarm keeps going off. Oh, that's um, right. <laughs> no, I mean my my first interaction, I would say, with TMD is probably through Charles. That one, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that whenever I go to loaded, you know, mm -hmm. and, and buy paint, he would always be the one that I would see, obviously. And I still remember um, when Disrupt first came out, like the make your, your magazine. Mm. Um, and I think I can't remember if it was the first issue, maybe second issue. And you, you had done an interview with him, and mm. and I had rock hair, and I bought some paint, and I didn't know who he was. Yep. And then I I saw him saying like, "Oh, check this mag out," and then yeah. he showed me, and I looked <laughs> through it, and it was like, "That's me," and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Like, oh my god, like I can't believe you're in this magazine, like." Oh, and I'm talking to you. Whoa, this is crazy. Um, and so, yeah, that that was probably my first time. You know, what was what was your impression of him like when you first met him? Like, you know, because he's a larger than life character. So, yeah, super, super cool dude. Super cool mm -hmm. dude. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, very humbling guy, and um, you know, always super kind to me. You know, when when I was like buying paint and stuff, and then so to be to have that kind of experience meeting mm -hmm. him in um 
also obviously seeing everything that you guys are doing with the hip hop summits and just the the bar that you guys had set, you know, with with the level of grass, you know, that always kind of blew me away, you know, because mm-hmm. I was just like, like, you guys are definitely on the next level, you know, mm-hmm. like levels and levels beyond, you know, kind of with some of the stuff that I was seeing. Um, and so from that, being able to link up with you guys, you know, I remember, um, you know, Charles giving me a call, asking me to be TMD, you know, super, mm-hmm. super obviously, and, and incredibly privileged to be part of this crew because I, I'm aware of the legacy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and aware of the, the bar that, like I said, you guys have set for New Zealand, you know, and mm-hmm. also from the pop summits to, to, you know, witnessing you guys win the rightful gold overseas. It's like, I mean, that was, I think, before I got put down. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. But just knowing the international kind of recognition that you guys had got and, and, and the kind of energy and work ethic you guys had to to put in the work overseas and everything, it's mm-hmm. just like, wow, what a put into this crew, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, what more can I say? It's just a incredible privilege to have been able to witness that at a very early age you know mm. in, you know in my career and then to have been put into tmd and be able to kind of carry that in some way what mm-hmm. you know what more could i really want you know it's funny like because you know i've been obviously sorting through a lot of the archive you know um for this this museum show that's coming up um you know the photographers like particularly you know deep Jamie McCready, you know, who's like was our first real dedicated documentarian before we even kind of had a thought of how important that was, you know, to have someone actively taking photos. I mean, you know, none of us were really even considering that. Uh, And Ramoni as well, you know, um, going through the photos and watching that kind of development, but particularly more so in Jamie's photos, which document the early years. I mean, his collection starts in about 1997 or 98. And then, you know, comes through to like, he was mostly documenting right up until about 2000, maybe, you know, four or five. Um, yeah, like and the amazing, amazing photos, you know, because the majority of them are shot on film, you know, like now he shoots medium format, but a lot of that stuff's just on 35 millimeter and it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's really kind of retained you know, something of a certain quality, you know, obviously like in so 2002 through 2005 or six, you know, he switched to shooting digital. And I remember we bought him his first digital camera. It was, um, it was probably like three or four megapixels, you know, it was like, <laughs> so that's a little gray spot in the history, but um, seeing the progression, not the progression, but the, sorry, the kind of how early certain people were like certain innovators in our crew, particularly, Charles, that one, um, Acre, um, exist, you know, like, I feel like these are three people who, for me personally, really kind of set the kind of standard, you know, in a lot of ways of TMD, you know, um, there's a lot of individual artists who are really in my way. Um, but I just feel like there was just like looking back, I'm just in awe of some of the things these guys were doing so early and just kind of what a clear vision that they had. And we kind of, we gravitated to them, you know, like 
you know, obviously I've been doing all the kind of 3D sort of stuff and everything, and at a certain point I just looked at what the rest of the guys were doing, and I realized that I was kind of the odd one out, but not in a good way. <laughs> so they inspired me to want to kind of really paint pieces with more of an impact, be bold, be big, you know, put the letters first, you know, which which I kind of did. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, sort of makes me think about lineages of style, you know, and it's sort of something that I think me and you nerd out a lot on talking about the kind of certain lineages of, of kind of style. Yeah. And, and I think the TMDs kind of developed a lineage, you know, and I think that now with you, I think that you are, I mean, I think that Charles was by far the most influential graffiti writer in New Zealand for a long, long time, you know, like as in you could just see his kind of flavor and a lot of other people's stuff, you know, and, and then I would say, you know, like today, you know, I see a lot of your flavor and a lot of people's stuff, you know, and so, you know, like, but, but there's those other less, like, you know, less celebrated kind of in a way writers in our crew that really put a, a mark on it, you know, so, you know, kind of, I wonder if you could kind of talk about that, like kind of, kind of like the way that things kind of develop stylistically within our crew. Sorry, could you say that last bit again? You cut a little bit. Yeah, I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about the lineage, the style lineage of our crew and the way things develop stylistically within our kind of group of friends and how that has kind of influenced things locally. Yeah, I mean, for me, Say that my most enjoyable kind of period mm -hmm. uh, probably has been the kind of stylistic conversations that I've had probably with you. Uh, has mm -hmm. at bands. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, I guess it probably started off for me with, you know, painting with has um, mm -hmm. kind of in the time before I met you, where mm -hmm. me and always be just always blown away by revokes pieces mm -hmm. and we would essentially try to emulate a lot of what msk was doing mm -hmm. uh, at least like the more kind of wild style west coast wild style kind of pieces mm -hmm. um and then from that then also seeing what people like ms revoke and people like arrow were doing with like what we called like style smashing you know just different colors with different mm -hmm. letters, different styles as well. Um, so we really kind of quite like that approach and mm -hmm. we tried to do it in, uh, within GBAC, like at least with some of the kind of members that kind of came through there. And then obviously when we kind of linked up, mm -hmm. um, it was this kind of notion of or kind of paradigm of niche, right? Which basically was this idea of next echelon, mm -hmm. you know, try to you know, challenge some of those boundaries of, you know, the order of the layering, the process, the background, the fill, the whatever, and um, mm. liberation, like uh, all these kind of aspects, I think was really important to push the kind of boundaries forward, you know, around what the possibilities are. ...had done for so many years at a very high standard, you know, in terms of the kind of two-man productions, um, at least in, mm. my, in my head, I, there has to be more. There has to be more, you know, like, uh, 
Askew and Fat One, they're already like the kings at doing that, like two man kind of production with the two pieces and Caro, like, um, mm -hmm. motivated to kind of change that format and try to bring something new to the table. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. you know, all of you guys, um, really enabled to kind of bring that to life because you guys also had the technical skills to, to kind of do that. Um, and then obviously, uh, Soffles and Vans, you know, they're based in Australia. Mm. They kind of came over at times as well, but you know, they kind of, I feel like had their own kind of vibe and spin on that. Mm. Um, they collabed, and, you know, I think probably what I'm, what I'm seeing more these days, um, is less of that notion of collaboration, you know, because mm -hmm. it does require a level of coordination, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be together at, at, at that kind of capacity. Um, not saying that people can't do it. It's just that nobody's kind of put time aside to, to work in that way because it does require a little more kind of energy and, and kind of preparation. And that's mm -hmm. actually what be a little bit more of, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's just so busy with, kind of projects and work and kids and family, mm -hmm. you know, makes mm -hmm. it a little more, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I would have, I still want, I, I still believe that there is a lot of uh, possibilities for us to kind of push it even further. Mm -hmm. um, and, and during that time as well, there were, I, I think there were a lot of pieces that, you know, that we, we had done that maybe didn't work so well, you know, mm -hmm. but once again, of important, go through that otherwise we would have just been doing the same thing you know and, mm -hmm. and not been brave so yeah. um yeah i still in the coming years you know especially you know kind of everybody's kind of we work together and then everybody's kind of gone out and done their own thing so everybody mm -hmm. it's best thing you know that everybody's you've moved on to a completely new kind of aesthetic and done and you know i'm sure mm -hmm. but coming back um back into this you know at some point you know you'll you'll have something new to bring to to the table too you know so um yeah i don't know if that really answers your question you know because i can't really no i i think it, i think it does that... well i think what it is i think what you touched on here and it's something that I'm, I'm trying to focus on a lot in some of the later chapters of the book is really this um this moment you know it was a moment you know it was a moment um i i i keep reflecting on how much the platform Flickr kind of played, you know, as being a very positive, you know, it was a photography focused platform. So people were kind of being pushed to document their work really well. Um, the conversation on there was much more constructive. Like people were kind of really kind of developing in leaps and bounds during that era because it was like you felt motivated by seeing like every development that somebody made you just felt compelled to kind of meet that equal that or burn that you know what i mean um and i also i mean obviously you know like with the influence of like msk and awr like i think it's really valid to kind of acknowledge you know someone like tyke you know who really is kind of a lot of that particular approach to painting the kind of the yep. mishmash and kind of, you know, fusion of kind of different illustrative elements and making the letters like characters. We also had Ewok come over uh, to Aotearoa in 2002 for the Hip Hop Summit, uh, which I think had a really indelible impact on our scene. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, like, you know, um, 
I think that, it, and I'm glad you brought up Sophos because I think actually DTS played a really major part in this. It was a conversation, you know, between different people that were really into pushing the boundaries, you know. And I remember it was you, you were really like really talking about DTS. Like I still wasn't kind of like, like kind of aware of just kind of how next level they were going yet, you know. And you said to me before I'd gone to Australia, for one of the um, the Ironlac like crew like team walls that uh, took place in, in Gold Coast, you're like, bro, we need to like really step up our game. Like we need to get on on the level of like what DTS are doing at the moment. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's pretty cool. Like you know, it was like downplaying, and I, I love those guys. I went over and and Charles uh, and myself went over and spent that time, and it was like vans, and then you know like uh, trees. Um, blends like Seiko, like everyone was all hanging out and working on Swore. And I watched the ethic that these guys had, and I was like, and kind of they were doing the real loose, flared out kind of stuff and everything. But then they were coming with like super skinny caps and just doing the most kind of intricate detail over the top. And I remember coming back and I said to you, bro, you're right. You know what I mean? Like, we we really like have to step it up and i think the very next wall we went and painted was the one on point and terrace with elliot francis stewart which is officially what we would kind of consider our first niche right i'd say so yeah and i remember in turn soffles got so heated and motivated from that wall that he was like i'm i'm gonna burn you guys like and like within like a few days, he had a response. You know what I mean? He had a, a wall that was just like so amazing. We were just like, what the fuck? And then like, so that's how it went, right? Yeah. And maybe maybe that's what we need more of, that kind of mm -hmm. dialogue of, you know, between writers that your next piece has to be that much more explosive, that much mm -hmm. more kind of next level. Is when there isn't that, you know, everybody's just out there kind of just painting and painting and it can just be sometimes maybe this endless quest, mm -hmm. you know, or might just chuck up a, a piece, which is like a stamp, you know, kind of innovate. And I mean, in saying that there, there is, from what I've seen, you know, overseas, uh, particularly in Europe, I think there's some fucking really next level shit going down right now. Mm -hmm. uh, super creative and really pushing the boundaries. I agree. Um, yeah, and and I'd love for New Zealand writers to work towards getting on that level. You know? mm -hmm. I think I think New Zealand has kind of like regressed a bit, and I and I think that sadly it has a lot to do with like the big buff that happened in late uh, 2010 for the 2011 Rugby World Cup. I think that people felt um, like they didn't really want to focus time. Within like in two and three hours, and people were having to take, you know, night photos of of a trackside piece, and it sort of started to feel like really futile, you know, like um, and I think people really regressed into a kind of a more of a, a train focused kind of style, whether they were painting on trains or not, um, and I think also that the generation younger than than you guys, you know well there are a couple of generations but mts you know like a super influential crew they are kind of like you know or have been kind of superstars somewhat you know like because they were so focused on painting passenger trains and subways and, and stuff 
and freights, they, um, you know, they were really into those kind of more Australian influence, kind of like more funky kind of train type of styles, you know. Um, but, you know, like I have hope, I have hope, you know, I think with some of the battles that you've been organizing and everything, I think like um, been seeing what a lot of these young people can achieve when given an entire day to really focus on doing something. And, and don't get me wrong, there's definitely talent. There's definitely mm. talent there. Uh, it all comes back down to the mindset, right? Mm -hmm. What that kind of mindset is, you know, whether mm -hmm. or not they do want to, you know, to paint something. I think that's on par with what's happening, if not, you know, beyond what's happening mm -hmm. overseas, you know. And I, I don't, I haven't seen anybody try to take it to that level yet. Um, maybe mm -hmm. it's Maybe it's skills, but yeah, I think it all starts with the mindset. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's it's a matter of linking up with more young people to to try school them up. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I also think about you know how challenging it is in times like now we're we're living in a you know a global pandemic. You know, like the largest global pandemic in like you know a hundred years. And, um, you know, like a huge part of like what really aside from the internet and magazines and different media and stuff, a huge part of what kind of, I think, drove our development was, you know, our foreign visitors, you know, especially back. Yeah, we, we had such a steady stream of people coming that were linking with us in painting and painting and, you know, you could see the influence and the impact of each person that came and just kind of that exchange of knowledge you know um but you know I, I'm, I'm i'm hopeful you know like i'm hopeful because i feel like you know when i was leaving new zealand like around the time that i left um it had gone through a kind of a wave where we were very out of vogue like we'd fallen out of favor like doing very technical pieces was kind of suddenly kind of like the thing and there was a more of a wave of kind of oh, excuse me hipster kind of hipsterish, kind of simplistic or anti-style kind of pieces, you know, pieces that sort of look to be, I mean, I think that they were kind of, they put a lot of effort into looking like they put no effort in, you know. Um, so, you know, but it's kind of more like slacker graffiti, you know, and um, we're kind of overachievers. So I don't think people really kind of like what we were doing anymore. Um, but I think that it's kind of, it's making a comeback, you know, I'm seeing people kind of striving like, you know, a little more for that. But what I want to see, like you said, is the collaboration, you know. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things that can happen from collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't quite explore the possibilities of what that can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this, and... of like, say a production or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I think the kind of old notion of a production has been, been dead for a long time you know what i mean like i just um re-watched the fx video um yesterday like i put her on while i was working on some drawings and i just remember kind of how exciting that was at that moment you know what i mean and then i remember that kind of fell out of favor too where kind of like people kind of then would also kind of joke about a concept of a, a wall with like pieces flying around and in the sky and like kind of the four horsemen of the apocalypse or something, you know, riding in or whatever. And, 
and I, I always did really enjoy what they did on the West Coast, kind of, you know, the next wave for me was really like seeing that MSKAWR kind of wave of kind of like putting letters first and all of the extensions and designs and connections, everything that kind of filled out the background became the production without being like a literally, like literally a Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe you kind of like, um, we should sort of stare it back a little bit to kind of to TMD history and everything. I think that a really vital time for our progression was when we had the studio on Nelson Street and we started like the Natch Park there. Because, um, and maybe you can walk people through because, you know, I I'm probably tending to kind of take, take over a little bit, but it's really your interview. So, Kind of, could you kind of explain to people kind of what was going on there and why it was so important? Yeah, so around the time of 2000 and I would say uh, 10 or 11, around there, maybe 12, mm -hmm. but I would say 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. um, after I finished studying my art degree, um, one of our friends, Snick, sparked up a conversation with basically a, a property developer and this property developer basically had this kind of a lot of land, which was like a three-level car park smack bang in the middle of the city in Auckland. Mm -hmm. And he, he, this uh, property manager, uh, property developer, gave an opportunity to house a bus. Uh, it was you, me, uh, Snack. You still there? Yep. Still there? Can you hear me? Yep, I'm here. Yep. Uh, me, me? Yep. at uh, Misery at one point, and um, mm -hmm. also uh, Roth, um, who don't paint graffiti, but, but they make, make art. Um, so there was about, yeah, six or seven of us, which basically, they gave us a massive kind of factory floor space. Um, I can't even describe how big it was, but it was massive. And mm -hmm. as well as that, the property developer basically gave us all of the walls to paint and in this three-level car park. And I can't even express how big this place is. Um, but basically at this time, it was a great opportunity for us to develop what we were up to because they gave us, gave us an opportunity to, to paint the walls outdoors and kind of continue the graffiti practice and also um, develop, continue to develop our, our studio practice indoors. And that was also... Um, very vital, I think, to a lot of us to, to have that kind of duality of practice, you know, mm. to working on things simultaneously. Um, mm -hmm. And basically the outdoor space became somewhat of a hall of fame. That's kind mm -hmm. of how I did it. Um, mm -hmm. And international people came over, they had a space to paint, um, and it became, you know, a, a very important kind of, you know, public art gallery almost, public space, mm -hmm. you know, um, just because it was, it was such a thoroughfare of people because it was in the smack, you know, smack back in the middle of the city. So for me, that was like a huge opportunity. Um, and you know, some, some of the pieces that we painted there, you know, are possibly our big pieces too. Um, some of them, mm -hmm. at least in terms of graffiti. Um, but also, yeah, just having a place for people to kind of jam out, you know, was really nice. Um, mm -hmm. And, and work in that kind of studio setting where we could have a shared studio space and, and kind of bounce ideas off each other and just be in mm -hmm. that kind of, which is really important. 
um, yeah. and illustrate how big this place actually was. Um, you know, the the property developer, you know, ended up, well, he wanted to turn it all into like apartments and fancy shops and everything, but that kind of fell through. But he ended up selling mm -hmm. the property uh, for close to like 55 million or something like that. Mm -hmm. so That's right. That just to give you an idea, like, you know, once is like a million dollars, an old house in New Zealand. In so to sell something for 55 million is like, is bloody mm -hmm. massive. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that was having that space for, how long did we have it for? Was it about two years, we, two and a half? We had a, we had a rent free for two years. He, he gave us a, a, a rental agreement. It was like just a, an agreement on a piece of paper that basically said you will pay zero rent but I only have to give you four weeks notice to get out. And he literally terminated the rent after exactly two years because he, he had to sell and he, he regretted it. Actually, he, he, he was sad. He, he wanted to, he wanted to see it, you know, into the, the city, you know? And um, yeah, I think about, you know, I think you were a really big motivator during that time. Like I think a lot of your, um, your particular approach was about what if instead of pumping these pieces out as fast as possible and trying to do the most, what if we spent the longest possible time? And I think we did the first wall we did there, we may have spent two months on Possibly, one piece yeah. each. Yeah. And like, and like for me, I kind of, I don't want to take any tribute that, that thought, you know, of taking, Mm. as long as you can to rhyme mm. you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think it was in 2008 or 2009 mm -hmm. i think maybe 2000 you know we painted together you know mm -hmm. on storage wall i think yeah yeah, but sure. yeah. It came over from, and then you know one thing i yeah with host yeah um, the one thing I remember him saying was just, you know, what would happen if you basically spend three days or four days or something painting a piece, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, kind of, and even at that moment in time, you know, he when he said that, that didn't register with me until like mm -hmm. three years later. We had that kind of, so it was also kind of circumstantial to have that space, like wall space, mm -hmm. and a, yeah. To just be like fuck like let's not just paint normal size pieces let's try to mm -hmm. go larger more colorful more tech more whatever the hell mm -hmm. we need to do just you know change our yeah. attitude our approach change you know like just try to rethink all of those things and yeah i mean I, i'm super glad i did it and i still wish i could do that again mm -hmm. um you know today you know but it's, yeah. it's more that I just have a lack of time to be able to mm. do that. Mm -hmm. It's um, totally jumping ahead. Um, but also, uh, Vans, he has recently just started like a new project for the yeah, three, three by four, three by 12, I think. Three by four. Three by four. I don't know it why. Equals it's two. Four. I think it shouldn't be. Oh, okay. It equals 12. 12. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, anyway, the project, yeah, is kind of that you paint a um, piece each month, but it's mm -hmm. it's basically the same. And each mm -hmm. time you go, you just kind of modify it as much or as little as you need. And so I'm actually right. quite 
looking forward to that idea because mm-hmm. um, again, it, it's uh, it's challenging to me the uh, traditional way of painting graffiti. You know, like it's not mm. usually when you paint a piece and you finish, you're, you're gone, and you take a picture and it's done. You never revisit it. Um, mm. Where you're like this approach, and this is the mentality is it's more like a painting, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll be chipping away at it. And, and maybe this is more like a, you know, an art thought. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, to be able to go back to this piece that I'll paint, you know, 12 times, not, not to create 12 iterations of it, but just to modify it, adapt it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really looking or, forward to it. Or, or if you want to completely change it, you have freedom to do that too, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, if anything goes, I think what's going to be great is seeing like the, the difference in approach, you know, seeing yeah. people really challenge themselves and also, you know, everyone's so different, like as far as how our thought processes are, how we're going to, how we're going to do it is, is, you know, no two people are going to paint the same or, or interpret the concept the same way. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, having that kind of thought in my mind of of approaching, you know, mm-hmm. this, you know, which is quite different than just slapping a random piece on a wall. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it kind of aligns back to that similar thought that Ryan, you know. Yeah, well, Ryan was really the driver of these types of projects, you know, with the um, the exchange and revamp in 90s, which were both really brilliant, brilliantly conceived projects that um, forced you know, that inc- uh, included a whole bunch of, them. say, force, they didn't force us, but, you know, like, um, incorporate a whole bunch of different artists from around the world and actually, you know, kind of, yeah, I will say force, forced us to kind of get outside of our own comfortable little box because there yeah. are a lot of, like, logo painters in the graffiti scene, like, people who make very gradual iterations to, like, pretty much the same outline for their entire career, which is, like, cool as well i mean i think the coca-cola logo is great you know like you don't notice the way the coca-cola logo changes year to year but if you look at it over a 20 year span it always changes you know what i mean and so that's 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 a certain approach but that's not really like our approach you know and you know you got to acknowledge all the people that are kind of like forced us out of that that comfort zone absolutely and and actually i i would also you know on the record like to um, acknowledge the the exchange project. You know, mm-hmm. I just think it's a fucking sick idea. You know, in many ways, mm-hmm. that also encourages to um, do do the kind of um, you know what I call the dedication project, which was when mm-hmm. I, for the better part of a year or two or however long, you know, was basically mm-hmm. painting other people's names. You know, mm-hmm. almost just other people's names as opposed to my, my own purely mm-hmm. to challenge myself with mm-hmm. different letters and um yeah explore the possibilities of you know what i could achieve with different letters with other people's names you know mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. to try to avoid um like stagnate and just paint you know my mm. my name with the same mm. forms and shapes and yeah, to kind of force myself outside of my comfort zone, you know, that was really important. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of for the exchange project being you know, an opportunity mm-hmm. for people to get out of their own skin and be forced to, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, paint. I mean, actually, it was really, really interesting to see in the exchange just one thing that really stood out to me. And that was that um, people's distinct character and approach 
to drawing and conceiving a piece can look mm. so radically different once interpreted by somebody else. Like there were so many things that I know personally, like I could land in my particular way and it would look cool. But when I would see other people paint it, I'd be like, oh, damn, it looks like I'm not sure if that works. Yeah, and vice versa, when I would interpret other people's stuff, like somebody who, who was really imp like super hard to interpret, you know, um, was um, poet, you know, from, from Berlin. You know, he'd always, always been one of my favorite writers, you know, like um, just had got so into him through, you know, the books and, and media that like Asim shared with me in my times, like staying in Dortmund. And he was really hyped on all the Berlin kind of scene and everything and said, it's, it's a very unique and interesting scene in Europe. And it's really worth studying what the philosophy of like these writers and like, so I was just geeked to kind of like interpret some of his stuff. And man, it was just, it was just so much harder than it looked, you know? Yeah. yeah it was yeah. so minimal. Minimal but big so, shapes in some places. It just, everything just comes from the strangest kind of angle, you know, it's like, it's just a whole different way of thinking, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, that was, that was, that was an amazing opportunity, man. Like, you know, like it really got me out of the box. Did you, did you have much of a conversation with him? Like a dialogue? No, like not really. Like we, we were all chatting and, and stuff. I think we might've all been in some sort of like group email or something. And we were sharing, you know, like there was people like Bates and Bates um, could kind of just land anything and achieve anything, you know, like it sort of seemed kind of somewhat effortless for him. Um, but some of my ones that I did, I just felt like were kind of a bit wonky, you know, like um, what I think looked really cool though. Like I, I do like my little addition to the, um, the whole project was, doing those whole pages of kind of random oh, sketches for people. Sick. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. They kind of looked alone. I still have them all. I still have all those sheets. So that's kind of cool. Yep. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, I guess for me, the kind of lesson there, which also mm -hmm. links back to said earlier about the international presence of, of people traveling, you know, mm. to New Zealand and kind of dialogue or exchange of ideas mm -hmm. um, maybe for something that has been missing in New Zealand, you know, coming mm -hmm. back to the New Zealand context, you know, I can't mm -hmm. remember the last person, international writer that came to New Zealand that, um, mm -hmm. other than maybe perhaps train writer. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just here to paint trains. Yeah. You know, who, who was here for engage in such a way that, you know, some of the writers that you had brought over previously, you know, like that level of engagement. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's the thing that's missing, you know, yeah. to think to inject into the scene. Well, I think like, um, you know, I sort of identified pretty early, you know, that the scene would benefit, the most people would would, would benefit from having you know, people come to us versus like just one of us going over and then bringing knowledge back. I yep. mean, it's such a different landscape. Like, I mean, once upon a time, you know, that happened and it happened very successfully, which was when Finer went to Los Angeles, you know, and brought back the kind of the blueprint for the streets kind of style of tagging, you know. And, um, but in this sort of landscape, you know, that that's maybe not going to have the same kind of cut through that it used to, you know. And, sure. um, and you, you, you know, you carried that on. I mean, when I stopped organizing it, focus my 
kind of projects and you kind of took the mantle and started organizing the battle, there was that opportunity. But those opportunities that the actual graffiti jams and the things that we're doing, you know, kind of in the public interest, you know, where people could kind of attend, um, you know, had a massive impact. You yep. know what I mean? It, it's, yes. it's, it's, yeah. And, and, and maybe that's like, you know, in a, po in a post COVID kind of reality, maybe that's something we'll get back to doing, but it just seems incredibly challenging right now. So it seems like, Oh yeah. If, yeah. yeah if, thing, if things are going to push forward, like people are going to have to find new sources of inspiration and new ways to kind of um, challenge themselves. You know, I think the battles like a cool idea you know like for just kind of encouraging like young people you know and like because graffiti is graffiti like people are gonna do graffiti in itself you know for the sake of doing graffiti anyway you know um, but what we are talking about is just very much the stylistic kind of end of it you know like right now and how that develops yeah and, and i think there is an abundance of influence mm. you know and anybody can get the influence but to mm -hmm have somebody come over and, mm -hmm. and with this scene here mm -hmm. as some of the previous writers have, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't kind of happened at that level for a yeah, while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, that's what I'd love to see in the future. It or, seems like, it seems like to me that the scenes changed a lot, you know, like Auckland isn't really the epicenter it used to be, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a lot more like writers that are doing really interesting things that maybe don't come from one of the major cities. Like, you know, like there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely like a, a good, good batch of Wellington writers and Christchurch writers and many have gone abroad and kind of made their names, you know, and, um, but now you're seeing people from like other places, like kind of in between like Rotorua and H town, you know, people from Whangarei you know, like from other places, which is, which is really dope to see as well. And they seem to have like a totally different network, like a parallel network that's outside of the city networks. Like they all travel and link with each other. They kind of almost kind of have facilitated their own scene that's separate from the, the major cities. Yeah. For sure. There's definitely lots of things happening in other cities. Mm -hmm. um, and things are definitely popping off, but yeah, I think I think New Auckland has has got a little more to more to go. Yeah, I think I think it's not it's not it's not the kind of shining beacon it used to be. You know, sadly, that's not me losing hope either. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, I haven't I haven't uh, you know I haven't been living in the country for almost um, five years. Uh, four four years now. It's come this in my fifth year, and um, it's been really surreal, kind of coming back and forth and getting these little glimpses. You know, I, I never really could have imagined, you know, not being part of that scene, the Auckland scene. I was always like waving the flag for it and everything, you know. But I do think it's 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 in capable hands. But I do feel that you know, we've kind of left a lot of that pressure on your shoulders you know like i think our whole crew and kind of everyone is kind of knowing that there's a certain responsibility that one person has to drive it and kind of similar to you doing the roller pieces you know back in the day i feel like you're kind of doing that a bit with the scene at the moment but i mean here's a question for you mm -hmm. i mean another kind of contextual thing to kind of factor in 
into this whole conversation, you know, we're talking about history and, and the kind of context of the New Zealand graffiti scene and things like that, um, mm -hmm. is that quite a lot of EMD have also, um, I don't want to say grown out of graffiti, but moved into different areas of art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Big shift that I think is really important to note, you know, like a, um, for a majority of the, the crew, um, you know, a lot of you guys haven't, you know, necessarily gone through art school, like a formal kind mm -hmm. of training, but um, you guys have found yourself in, in a, in somewhat a, an art world kind of context for some of you guys, mm -hmm. uh, whereas who are also working in public spaces, but creating more things like murals, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, pieces of graffiti. So, mm -hmm. I think that is also an important kind of paradigm shift, you know, like, because that's also all of that work that everybody's doing from the crew. Um, that's also possibly shifting as well, because a lot of the younger guys coming up when they see, instead of seeing tags, which are things that are quite possibly more relatable to them or, or achievable, you know, based mm -hmm. on their at that time. Now they're mm -hmm. seeing some detailed, like one of your portraits and mm -hmm. they're probably fathom that I don't know how to do it therefore mm. I'm not possibly um mm. yeah there's like there's like another a shift I think that that we're kind of seeing here where you know, not everybody but a lot of um I think your generation from our crew is is going into more of that space mm -hmm. um has been operating in that space and um yeah I mean I mean that's a positive thing too because you know you 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 guys are breaking new ground and and laying the blueprint for what might be a career for someone else in the future, um, you know. So I think that's also very important. But yeah, I think that's also a very important kind of paradigm shift to, to kind of, as part of the TMD story, you know. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and or not it is, you know, whether or not you want to label it as the post you know, Graffiti Pacific work um, or simply that it's murals. I don't know, but um, that definitely is part of the story now. Yeah. I, think. I, I mean, I think um, my, my personal kind of belief is that, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to reach a point in your life where you can never run around yep. with the type of enthusiasm and focus and making a priority of, of that. I mean, it's, it's kind of just, it's just silly to think that you ever will, you know, like when I think about the way, like my priorities were stacked, you know, like a decade and a half ago or whatever. I mean, graffiti was first. It was, I did, I did things that were like so crazy, you know, <laughs> so, so like kind of in a lot of ways, like disrespectful of my relationships with like my own family and, you know, loved ones and um, money didn't, really kind of matter you know like I just kind of like got by on so little and I just punished my body in a way that I just can't punish my body anymore you know there were just so many things and I was just so captivated by that and 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 so happy you know like so in the zone but there sort of comes a time where you just you're kind of almost forcing yourself to do it and you find that you have to work kind of smarter and not harder and you have to prioritize different and you know, you become very aware of your own mortality and your legacy and yeah. kind of like all of these kind of other issues, you know, which, you know, may or may not be important, you know, but um, yeah, like I, I would like to think that, um, 
you know, that we are working towards, and you sort of touched on this earlier, finding ourselves more in a space where we have a much broader kind of um, broader kind of conversation happening, you know, that draws from kind of more elements, more things coming into the mixture to kind of create something fresh and new to keep evolving this because, you know, and I've said it a lot, you know, like I'm not a super nostalgic person in a lot of ways. Like I do love history. Like I love history, you know, but I want to see things change in new and dynamic ways. You know what I mean? I get kind of like next, you know what I mean? And we may not be the people to make that happen. You know, we can only just kind of do what we can do and lay that out. Like, well, this is what we learned. It's our field research, you know. <laughs> this is what we know. It's going to be someone much younger than us that comes through and just pushes it into like a, a revolutionary new direction that just flips the whole concept of what is graffiti on its head, you know. And graffiti, like I said, is most basic is going to be like graffiti, you know. It's going to be simple and accessible. But, you know, I feel like we're just heading into really kind of different times and a different landscape, you know, and I feel like somebody's going to radically change this soon. What What do you think of what Levi's doing? Oh, I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I love it. And, um, but he's not the first person to do it. Sure. But, but I just think like it makes so much sense what he's doing because he's a skater, you know, so concrete has just kind of been, such a, a kind of um, essential kind of component, you know, of like how he, he kind of navigates and expresses himself in this world, you know, through his painting and through his skating. And so I think that makes so much sense. And then when you look at even his early pieces and drawings, I mean, they just were always intended to be kind of embossed concrete forms like this, like the skate park thing he did. It's just, it's, it's such a culmination of everything. It's yeah. It's, yeah. I, it's I awesome. think, yeah, I think that um, somebody like Levi, he's definitely bringing something new to the table, at mm -hmm. least expanding, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then the approach and just the visual language of graffiti. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, that's definitely something I would like to see more of from other mm -hmm. people. Um, yeah. And maybe that's maybe me also putting my art hat on. Mm -hmm. and I don't know, but... Yeah, there's so many possibilities, eh? Yeah, 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 totally, man. I mean, it's exciting, you know. I guess I guess, if there's anything to kind of come from this talk, you know, that maybe we can kind of impart on others is really about keeping that kind of wonder, that sense of, of kind of possibility, you know, about pushing the boundaries, you know what I mean? Kind of a unique way. I think, I think one of the things that maybe is a thought that I've always had in the back of my head mm. is, is um, we know what really good New York graffiti looks like, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that uh, those will always forever be the blueprint. And I, mm -hmm. I totally acknowledge. Um, and then there's also people that are like pushing on the other continuum, you know, pushing the boundaries of graph can be. Right. Mm. Uh, and that's great, too. Um, and I guess for me, my, my main uh, thing that I'm always you know, saying to a lot of the younger guys that I meet is, is, you know, try to obviously go as hard as you can, paint as much as you can. That, that's all. 
um, also what is our point of difference in New Zealand compared to the rest of the world. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like nobody really cares if you can paint a really good New York style. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because there's so many masters can emulate it. there, so many masters there, you know, so many people who already kind of perfected that methodology so long ago. Exactly. And so for me, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, what, what's, what's our unique point of difference? What, what's going to be the thing that makes people go, you know, fuck that's that New, New Zealand shit, you know, like that's so dope and whatever, you know, like, mm. I just feel that is also more of what I see of um, because I still remember um, speaking to Saves in, in the real-time episode and, and he mm -hmm. said, you know, in one really early pieces, um, you know, he, he did some Tongan patterns. Mm -hmm. And then in that episode, he was and, like... And a lot of his, a lot of his pieces, this, yeah. But this was like 10 years ago or something. And he was mm -hmm. like... I asked him, why did you stop doing it? And he was mm. like, it wasn't cool. Mm. You know, like, but that's his identity. But for whatever reason, he, mm -hmm. he's, you know, doing those kind of motifs hasn't fit into, hasn't fit into his mind of what a, you know, what should be the visual language of, you know, what graffiti should be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's quite the opposite. You know, mm -hmm. that is... Well, like I that. mean, you, I mean, I think, I think, like, because I, I think about uh, in the early '90s, right? You know, pretty much one of the first major graffiti magazines that came out was Australian. It was Hype Magazine, and there were so many Maori that were living in Australia, you know, who did integrate, you know, like Maori, like like motif into their letter shapes, not just as designs or fill patterns or themes, but literally it influenced the shapes, and then those magazines were going to New York and there were New York pieces from that time that were distinctly Maori influenced. You know, I think that's something that people don't kind of discuss, like, but there were certain arrows and shapes, like yeah. they were taken from like, you know, koru patterns and stuff and like, um, and we all saw that. So then it sort of became like kind of a thing in the like kind of mid to late nineties or early two thousands that when you kind of, rift on that you know if you were a maori artist painting graffiti that it kind of got seen as kind of somehow being a throwback to the early 90s and people didn't kind of like understand that whole kind of connection um which i think is really an interesting thing something i'm going to talk about a bit in the book um so i'm glad you brought it up um and but there were people that were grappling with it in a kind of weird and unique ways like I sort of think about um, about Tank, you know, and I think that his pieces started to get very strange and kind of loose, but the the forms were kind of drawing more from you know his culture. Uh, yep. Wax, Wax was another one, you know, yep. and sort of I wasn't at the time like a, a super like hard out fan of what he was doing, only because like I didn't appreciate it in that context in that moment because like I was just had my philosophy or whatever. But looking back at it now, you know, I'm like, damn, the kid was really, like, smart, you know? He was really onto it, you know? And he was kind of a, a, ahead of his time, you know? I feel like it's definitely of originality with what he's done. Mm. Mm. You know? Yeah. And, and for me, I guess, for me, I guess when I, 
if one day we were to ever create a New Zealand graffiti book, you know how they mm -hmm. have like uh, books out there, which is like top 100 street artists mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. 100 London graffiti artists, you know, th those types mm -hmm. of books. Imagine if mm -hmm. you created for New Zealand and, mm. you know, fucking all hundred people is just looking like New York style pieces. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, very sad, you know, kind of reflection of, of, of the scene here. What I would love to see is just fucking innovation after innovation, you know, like mm. that's what I'm, you know? Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, this was a talking point for, for me and, and saves a lot. You know, and at that time where we kind of started kind of riffing on that kind of whole idea of like, you know, um, you know, post graffiti Pacific was kind of like born out of that notion of like, what is it that really sets us apart, you know? And um, I guess now having spent quite a like number of years living in the US, um, I think that it's the collectivist kind of mindset which kind of kind of goes against in a lot of ways, um, you know, the kind of core principle of graffiti in, in a lot of ways, which is very individualistic. Egotistical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like New, New Zealand's like, you know, I mean, there are people that kind of, you know, are very crew focused out here too, you know, like if I look at a crew like FC, you know, then there's a really distinct kind of lineage in that crew. And there's kind of like a, a kind of blueprint that they kind of follow and it, it's kept really within that crew and it's really distinct and recognizable, you know, and I, and I've always loved that, you know, and I think, um, you know, you may see it in other crews too, and, and you know, you do, you know, but I just think the kind of real collectivist kind of mentality of sort of growing up around like so many, like, you know, people, you know, in our city, you know, I think it, it kind of influences our way of being, you know, I think I think like uh, something like a concept like niche could only have come from our city because it's like I don't know if people realize but we painted half of each other's pieces. You know, like we mm. we just divided up the forms and then basically I was jamming on your piece and you were jamming on mine and I think the craziest one we did a ten person wall or nine person wall, nine people just working on each other's pieces, just whatever we felt like adds people just added it, you know what I mean? It's like that's so far from the mentality of like, you know, give me like, you know, a foot on either side of my piece, you know? Yeah. Don't even, don't even make, make sure there's enough space between our pieces. Make sure you don't clip mine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I learned a lot of that mentality strangely though, also from being, having the contact with Lumet. Right. You know, like, like Lumet also infected my kind of like way of thinking too. Cause I mean, more in the way that he was like, well, you're going to make your piece look like a um, dinosaur, you know, <laughs> something like ludicrous or a cow, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's cool. That's cool. You know, but, um, but, but, but there was a little bit of that idea of like, it can be different, you know, and, and it should be different. And, and, and I think like, you know, he, he came out, you know, to New Zealand a number of times. And I think that he also kind of really, really changed our kind of whole way of seeing, you know, Agreed. Mm -hmm. I wish I had. What? Sorry, say it again, man. I wish I had the opportunity to meet him. Yeah, man. Or well, maybe one day you will. Like maybe when when all this dies down, you know, it'll happen. I know that New Zealand is, you know, definitely a place that's very, you know, it has a special place in his heart.
so I've heard. Still there? All right, man. Well, I think it's probably a good place to. Yeah, man. You hear me? Yeah. I think I think it's probably a good place to good good spot to kind of wrap this up for the night, man. I just want to say I really really appreciate you, bro. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate what you're doing for the scene, just your work ethic and your drive and your dedication to kind of inspiring and pushing pushing young people, you know, like to, to, to strive and giving them opportunities and an outlet and also taking that into the educational realm and kind of legitimizing it that way is it's, it's really important work, man. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your um, um, giving me a push, man, at a really essential time. I mean, I, I could have easily have faded out from doing this, you know, yes, and, yeah. uh, and you injected the energy that brought me, revived my career too, so. Here's the other thing as well. I think for me and you, we've always mm. very similar kind of wavelength in terms mm. of our motivations. You know what mm. I mean? We first started painting like to, to try to do something innovative or push the boundaries or whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. You know, even over the past couple of years, even though we haven't had that kind of like um, kind of close contact because you've been overseas, mm. uh, the reality is even what you're doing right at this moment with this book, the TMD book, mm. that is no different as far as I'm concerned to what I'm also trying to achieve with the web series. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the sense that both those things are trying to document something about our scene here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the core of it, you know, it's, it's with the scene at heart, you know, to, to try to leave a legacy of something that will live beyond both of us, mm. you know? So I think that is, that is a very important thing to note, you know, like that actually both of us are trying to achieve the same goals, you know, like even though you mm -hmm. can't do video or whatever, both of them mm. are still really in the same vein of doing the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. on levels, you know? So once again, you know, um, Hats off to you, you know, for for doing all those things and everything that you've done, you know, for the scene because all those things that you've done have been incredibly crucial, you know, from the events to bringing people over to to the magazine to even what you're doing now, you know. You have also been, I think, a huge instigator or driver within TMD to, to get a lot of these things, you know, up and running, you know. Um, so, yeah, acknowledging... Well Oh, bro. I appreciate it, man. I'll tell you, you know, just lastly, I think that the thing that keeps me doing that and keeps me inspired to do that is the the energy that we have and the, the love that we have as a crew. You know, like the fact that um, these people will never let us fall through the cracks or slip into obscurity or fade away. You know, like our friends are like our forever friends, their family, you know. And, um, and we, we work as a unit, you know? So it's like, even though, like, me and you might be driving certain things at, at certain time, like, there's such an amazing support network there, which is just why we've managed to, to hang around for so long, you know what I mean? For sure, you know, bro. And it's it's sure. very unique, man. Not You know, I haven't experienced it elsewhere, you know, quite the same, you know? I appreciate it more and more. I can't wait to get home Uh you know, in six weeks and do that quarantine and then see you all hopefully 
no doubt. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully we won't be back in some kind of lockdown again by then, you know? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, bro. All right, man. Thanks a lot, bro. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks to everybody that uh, tuned in and listened. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what up to Deep, uh, to Jill, to Elvis, uh, to Porksky. I've seen a few guys in there. It's good. And Wayne was in there earlier. He might be gone now, but it was awesome. I'm glad, glad some people popped in to have a listen. Sweet oh, name. and Wes. And Wes. I've seen Wes just pop up just right then, too. Nice. All right. We'll see you when uh, you get back to New Zealand, bro. Yeah, bro. Looking forward to it, man. Take care, man. Peace out. See ya.